Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 36 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Superman Lover. And I'm joined here by my sensational co-host, former market maker of 20 years and present-day retail trader, a former bouncer whose silhouette resembles that of a large land mammal. Surprisingly, he wears a lot of Ralph Lauren, but is not with the horseplay. I'm talking about Saskatchewan's beloved son, JJ. JJ, How you doing? how's it going? How you doing good, brother. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, man. Excited, honored for our guest today. He's a man who was born and raised in Southern California. He received his bachelor's in theater from UC San Diego. He then moved to New York City, where he's been on the small and large screens and stages. You know him as Ben Kim on the hit Showtime series, Billions. I'm talking about Daniel K. Isaac. Daniel, how's it going? Good, good. So you're Superman, not Batman? Uh, <laughs> you know, you know. honestly, I do like Batman better. I, I don't know why you had okay. to bring that up. I do like Batman better, but... <laughs> All right. No, no, I'm with you there. I, I didn't know if we could continue with this interview if uh, you were that pro-Superman, I think. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm pro-Batman. I... I respect the intellect, the the smarts, but when it comes to maybe the affairs of love, I'm more like Superman, but let, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, but no, like I was saying before, man, pleasure uh, for joining us. Uh, I just want to start off, I want to ask you, what's the climate right now um, in New York amidst, you know, the lockdown and, uh, you know, obviously all the protests happening? Totally. Um, I'm in Queens in Astoria, so it's a little quieter here. Um, a sort of hot and muggy day today for literal climate. And um, I, I feel a sense of unrest, yes, but also um, maybe a potential for hope and change with this mm-hmm. unrest. And right. so um, I love this city and I call it home and I, I'd like to believe that it'll um, result in change for the better, hopefully. Um, yeah, so I, I, I will throw an optimistic, um, slant on it for yeah. now. Yeah. Also, no, I, yeah, I mean, I feel, I, I feel optimistic, um, as well. I've already kind of seen, it seems like there's sentiments changing at least a little bit or good things are happening. Um, it's funny in Astoria, Jay, I'm sure you have some funny <laughs> stories <laughs> about it. Well, yeah, I had, my, I had, I had those interesting clients in Astoria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, were they mafia related well you know when you know when you work in trade in vancouver you end up you know like you're very familiar with hall on your show my clients were all kind of like hall <laughs> <laughs> he's one of my favorite characters and human beings in real life oh interesting but, um, that uh that that must be an interesting dynamic to have worked in there are um, there are paint stores and uh, like travel agencies that are long outdated, and I am convinced are not um, real. Oh, and and chandelier shops. That was oh, one yeah, where that's right. I totally spiked my suspicion. Like who Those buys are the best. chandeliers in rentals in Astoria, Queens, right now? Those are the I best. I think no one. Yeah. So, uh, please don't put a hit on me. I respect your business. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Wait, we love your business. Great. Keep up. You know. <laughs> right. Do, right. Do the good work. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Daniel, being from California, so you, uh, it sounds like, yeah, you, like you said, you call New York home. Um, how, how was it when you first moved out there? Like, change the pace. I feel like um, I was constantly told I smiled too much to be a New Yorker. <laughs> so um, I think 10 years later, people haven't really said that to me. So, maybe it really does go away or the city hardens you in a bit in a a certain fashion. But um, uh, other than like beaches and all around monotonous, beautiful weather, I, um, I do love the city more and, uh, and the pace of it uh, feels more in line with what I, I um, come alive in. So. Cool. Cool. So how, how have you been, um, you know, spending your time on lockdown, have you been able to uh, be productive in the house? 
you know, um, my therapist a couple weeks ago was like, please resist the urge to be productive when there's a global crisis. Mm. Um, <laughs> because I, um, I think as many children of immigrants, I imagine, and um, Asian Americans uh, compare self-worth with, or, you know, tie up self-worth with productivity. Right. And exactly. so um, in some ways, like I have um, dusted shelves I've never dusted before, <laughs> or, um, you know, like cleaned um, parts of the apartment that I didn't know existed and uh, reorganized bookshelves and um, little house projects, I guess. And, and I also have my writing. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that to have some sort of artistic agency in this time. But I, I've actually struggled with that um, desire or need to be productive when, um, when we're going through a pandemic. And, you know, survival for yourself and your loved ones feels paramount. And, um, and you know, my work is um, at a halt for now because in-person uh, uh, like work is sort of the necessity for my for my artistic expression and job. So mm -hmm. um, my partner works in finance and, and he's been on calls and, you know, has two monitors and has been busy this entire time. And I've been like, well, maybe I will read a book today <laughs> and maybe I will binge this TV series I've always been meaning to get to. And, um, and that can count as productivity. How about that? <laughs> That's funny. Well, that's, I think that's a good perspective, though, or good, good advice from the from the therapist. I, I didn't think of it in that manner because, you know, we could definitely like overwork ourselves or, or be too concerned with being productive to where it becomes a detriment. Right. Totally. Yeah. 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 Awesome. OK, so so, uh, Daniel, um, <clears throat> you know, I see a lot of similarities um, between our professions, you know, trading and acting. You know, I believe yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll go into it. You know, I believe the chances of making careers out of both of them are extremely tough. You know, the odds are stacked against us. Um, totally. Yeah, because, you, know, you know, and I believe that's why we have to have, like, a strong passion for these pursuits. Mm -hmm. Where does your passion from acting come from? Um, wow. I, I know that I love it, and so I can live and breathe it, and, and that I, I know that it is a source of joy and um love for me i think a part of it is mixed up in sort of a stubborn rebellion in my upbringing and that which was um expected of me growing up as a good korean american you know child of an immigrant um shirking the you should be a doctor or a lawyer so <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> I know a part of my love is mixed up in oh cool i'm doing this thing that um makes everyone unhappy and and some in some fucked up way that makes me um smile so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i i do i do recognize that and and yet it was also my like very conservative religious Korean immigrant mother who introduced <laughs> me to theater in the first place mm, and oh, um, and said, you know, all great people in life are good public speakers. I don't want you to ever have stage fright. Why don't you try out some theater at our church as a way to um, never have to struggle with that? Never imagining that I would stick with acting in theater and this profession um, for the rest of my life. But uh, she can't really um, fault me for pursuing it when she introduced me to it in the first place. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, that's that's oh, interesting. That's good. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, because the, you know, I, I say, you know, while I was saying the bit about like having the passion for it, right? Because like you don't you don't land every role you audition for. Oh. I'm I'm not going to win every trade that I make. Right. So right. I, so so when you do when you do fail, uh, maybe you've even gone on a streak of you know uh did it didn't get this role didn't get this role get, didn't get this role how do you let that from disturbing your mental equilibrium oh man yeah it's it's rough i before billions i was still waiting tables bartending um 
even the first couple of years of Billions, I was still doing that and mm -hmm. catering, personal assisting, handing out flyers, just every survival job possible. And, and I would go through streaks of auditioning where I wouldn't land the part or I'd be really close and then it would go to someone else. And it's, um, it's easy. I think it is easier to fall into a pit of despair or frustration or anger about um, repeated failure than it is to try to find, I don't know, the, like, the good spin on it. And so um, right. I would try to activate goodness for myself. And so if I went on an audition, um, I would immediately go to a, like a restaurant I liked or a coffee shop I loved or a bar I liked um, or go like shopping to try to like forget the audition itself, but also to like treat myself like mm. a puppy in training, just <laughs> um, to find something joyful after something that I knew was hard or um, if I really wanted it or was challenging or um, maybe felt impossible. I would try to change the energy of that in myself by a forgetting about it as soon as possible. So like a forced amnesia, mm -hmm. but also um, trying to, to like create the goodness that I wanted um, in the moment by doing something that I could do proactively, because I think so much of um, life can feel uh, like helpless or like out of our control. And so I would, do something that I was in control of, like going to that Korean barbecue I loved or getting that great martini somewhere um, or like buying a new shirt or whatever so that um, I could, you know, that like parks and recreation catchphrase, treat yourself. So mm -hmm. like I was treating myself and, um, and that kind of like helped in the little ways, mm -hmm. which I think add up for like, sustenance and and the like marathon that i think we're all in no matter our occupation right right absolutely no good advice yeah no that's, i that's healthy mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah no no i have i have you know i i, I just i it takes because it takes a mental fortitude to to uh to keep going past defeat after defeat after defeat and you know I just highly respect that no matter what type of field they're in. Um, so, so Daniel or yeah, Daniel, tell us about, um, the billions audition. How, how many auditions just do you have to go through? Um, I only auditioned once. I think it was just one scene in the pilot, the one where he talks about going to Stanford Wharton and, yeah. um, and like sort of thinks he's the cocky new hotshot and then acts kind of takes him down a peg or 10. Yeah. And, <laughs> I um I was auditioning at the pilot was cast by Avi Kaufman, um, who does a lot of indie film usually, and she brought me in. And the character was called Ben Kim, so I appreciated that there was a Korean American character in finance, which I thought was honest, but also um, you know a cool opportunity that the writers were making, um, acknowledging like there are people of color in the finance world. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I, I didn't think anything of it. I, I followed my personal decree of audition and then forget about it. And um, I think the audition was in December, early December, and then we were shooting the pilot in January. And so I, I must have heard pretty quickly that I was gonna get the part. And again, I had learned at that point to not get your hopes up and because you know I'd been close to projects or I'd booked things that had fallen through and so um, I just thought cool I will have I only worked one day for that episode I'll have one day I'll meet Damian Lewis like Band of Brothers is really um, moving and uh, incredible and like how great to get to share space with him for this day and my scene partner was Nathan Darrow and House of Cards, um, him working as the like driver assistant to um, Kevin Spacey's character. I just thought like, cool, mm -hmm. this is um, what an what an interesting day I will have in January of mm -hmm. 2015 or whatever. 
mm-hmm. um, never imagining or allowing myself to like get my hopes up because um, I didn't want to get disappointed or um, hurt really. Right. And so um, I guess I was lucky in that I only auditioned once and didn't think anything of it and something came of it. And then I, we shot the pilot and again, I, I shot pilots that hadn't gone anywhere. So I thought, who knows if this will move on. I'll have just appreciated this event for what it was. And, um, and then I was doing a play in the spring and I remember getting an email um, about the show getting picked up and, and them saying like, cool, do you want to do a couple more episodes in the office? And, um, and now here we are five seasons later. And so uh, I'm super grateful that, you know, I can like point to a project and say, this changed my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Did you once you knew you guys were getting past the pilot then did you, was it, did it still uh, like, was it a moment of celebration for you or was it still kind of like, Oh, you know, no telling where this could go or you didn't know the impact that billions was going to have. I didn't know. I think I have a cautious optimism or at that time, especially from um, like there was one big film that I had, I thought I had booked and then, do you remember that film, The Interview with Seth Rogen? Oh, yeah. And, um, yes, yeah. And, uh-huh. um, and it invoked the rage of North Korea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. I was going to be a part of another film uh, set in, you know, fictional North Korea, and they pulled the plug because of the, like, vitriol oh, and, um, because like, of that? like, mass fear that North Korea would retaliate on Hollywood, which is just an absurd sentence for me to say out loud, but was a a truth of the time. And so um, that was one of those instances where I I felt so close to something and then it was taken away from circumstances out of my control. And and so, you know, even with billions, I approached it as just, you do the thing, you do the job, and that's that, and who knows what will come. And so when the offer came to do, I can't remember what number episodes they were, but they were like, you'll do the second episode and then maybe the fifth and the sixth one. Because even the writers, they were creating the show as they were going and they didn't know and, you know, they don't make promises that they can't keep. And so it was like two or three episodes in addition to the pilot. And I thought, hell yeah, like how exciting. And that'll be that. And um and as I shot episode two, you know, I would get an email that said, why don't uh, we'll need you for episode three and um, maybe like seven. And then um, I would shoot episode three and they'll say, uh, we'll need you for episode four and like maybe nine and 11. And so um, by the end of it, we were shooting episode 12 of the first season and Brian Koppelman was sitting with a bunch of us uh, in the Axe Cap trading floor in um the like fake Connecticut set we did in mm-hmm. um, in New York and like which is like on the hour outside the city and he was hanging out and asking oh how many episodes have you done Kelly how many episodes have you done Dan who plays Mafi and mm-hmm. um, and everyone was saying their number and then they came to me and said now how many episodes have you done and I said oh this will be um, this will be all twelve and and they they were shocked <laughs> to, you know because you're just writing the show. They're not like thinking about who's in how many episodes. And, and, um, and then season two happened and that same thing happened again, where they said, we'll need you for this, you know, like these three episodes. And, Oh, I guess we'll add you in for these other, you know, two episodes. And the end of season two happened. And Brian asked that question again, like how many episodes have you done? How many episodes have you done? And, um, it came to me and I said, oh, I've done all, all 24 now. And so um, uh, it was nothing that I could plan and, and they didn't plan it either. And yet in hindsight, um, every opportunity built on itself and, and allowed me to continue to stay on the show. And, um, you know, it sounds so trite, but really has changed my life to be here um, with our truncated fifth season, 54, 55 episodes later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, I'm, I, I am only super grateful and, and uh, excited by that. 
Awesome. But I could um, never have predicted it, you know? Right, right. Well, you know, I, I, you know, it was another similarity I thought of <clears throat> between our professions, right? Daniel is the, you know, you said you uh, temper your expectations or almost like going with no expectations. It's the same thing with us, right? Because going into a trade, if I think I'm going to hit a home run trade, uh, it just, it's just not good for my mindset. You need to stay, no mm. expectations. If it works, great. If it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't move on. Just right. worry about the process. Yeah, just, right. Like mm-hmm. the journey is more important than the destination. And it sounds like a fortune cookie, but still, like, <laughs> it's true. When I apply that, yes. it, it actually, it makes it more worthwhile when you look back on it and right. like maybe allows for less struggle when you're going through it. It does. I, I think it allows for less struggle. And then like, even what you were just saying, like you're so grateful uh, and, and just like uh, coming, yeah, coming from a state of gratitude that billions worked out the way it worked out. Um, and I think, yeah, I just think it's a good mindset to be in. So that's, that's awesome. Great to hear that. So, so Dan, yeah, I mean, I guess you answered this question. I was gonna ask you next. Um, you know, obviously you said it changed your life. Um, so I imagine this opens up more opportunities, right? I mean, are, are people like, uh, contacting you? I mean, or like, (laughs) I remember, um, like between season one and two, I still was waiting tables. And um, there's a building in New York called the City Court Building. And mm-hmm. I work at a steakhouse in the basement of it. And in that high rise, there are a bunch of finance folks that I didn't know when I was, you know, waiting tables and bartending there all those years. Mm-hmm. Until after the first season of Billions was airing. And I would go to like, take someone's order or get them a drink. And they'd be <laughs> like, oh, you're that Asian dude from Billions. <laughs> and um and I thought, oh, okay, people in the profession are recognizing um, this TV show about finance and government and how, how cool. Um, but then it came to a point where I couldn't, like, like the restaurant was very high paced and, and you were always running around. But if a table was like, let's talk about Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti and um, Axe and, and Chuck and all, all these things, like I was sort of stuck there talking to them. And oh, wow. um and that like changed my uh, mindset of, oh, um, things will be different now interacting with strangers or with the public um, as they watch a show on cable that I, you know, we never know if who's watching it or who cares about it. And um, in TV and film, especially, whereas in theater, you know, like the audience you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was a, a very pleasant surprise. and. Um, and then like somewhere around season two, um, I had like a, a deal with the restaurant where I could just pick up shifts when I needed, which is uh, an actor's dream in New York or mm-hmm. in any city, um, mm-hmm. to have a survival job that you can sort of call into and say, Hey, I'm free this time or this time. Um, do you have any work for me? And, uh, that I, I think I was, we were shooting season two. And um, it was around Christmas time. And I thought, well, why don't I just pick up a couple of shifts to make a little uh, extra to, you know, pay for Christmas presents or whatever. And, um, and the restaurant was on like an app where you signed up for shifts or whatnot. And I, I went to log into the app and, um, and it said, you are no longer a, <laughs> a employee here. Really? And I thought, oh, yeah. Like the restaurant had quietly let me go. Um, <laughs> but also because I hadn't been working there for X amount of time. Mm-hmm, and, right. and that felt like its own sign of, all right, this mm-hmm. is a chapter of your life that's passed, whether you like it or not. And you know, <laughs> maybe one day I'll have to go back to waiting tables. Who knows? But um for now I was for that time at least I was it was in hindsight that I realized oh okay I'm not I'm not going back here moving uh, right along yeah yeah totally and like um Dan Soder who plays Mafi worked at Dos Caminos like a couple blocks away from the city corp building where I worked at um Hillstone they're called like Houston's and other names around the country okay. and uh and so we had both been like waiting tables on finance bros, we called them. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then became finance bros <laughs> on TV instead. Yeah. So, Gotta love it. 
Gotta yeah, love it. totally. That's so funny. <laughs> how, how is how is uh, Dan on set? Uh, he's a stand up comedian. I seen his. Uh, it was yeah. funny, by the way. His HBO, um, his HBO special. That show is so good, right? Yeah, yeah. He's funny, man. I yeah, yeah. So funny. I was lucky enough with a couple other cast members and crew to go see it live, and he in real life is just as funny. And I I feel like I straddle the introvert and extrovert spectrum right down the middle. But if I'm next to Dan, then I can be totally quiet and happily laugh along to his monologue or whatever joke he's workshopping or just whatever uh-huh. story he's telling because he is so funny, so genuine. And like, you know, you want people at a party who can like, bring the life and the, mm-hmm. the the joy to it and he is that person at the workplace and it's it's incredible and we both come from single moms and our only children and so like we our empathy meters high and we both live in Astoria <laughs> Queens and so oh. we would share cars home after work and stuff and he's like the big brother I never had um he's great so funny watches HBO special he has one on Netflix he has one on Comedy Central cool he's good people you know and you know he's he's very natural at the at the role that he plays on the show i notice a lot yeah. of the guys i worked with uh you know i worked in kind of the older times in the 90s and 2000 and on those desks and um Mephie and um and definitely dollar bill those are you know the two types of personalities that we you know we had a lot of those types of guys so it's it's nice it kind of brings back memories that's awesome. It's so cool to hear like when we are playing these fictional characters in finance that it actually reflects the real world. Yeah. You know, like my friends who are doctors are don't point to Grey's Anatomy and are like, that's my hospital. We yeah. go through all of that drama all the time. Like it doesn't work yeah. that way. And I know we like totally fictionalize things on our show for dramatic and like storytelling sake, but yeah. um, it's cool to see that represented for sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. You guys do a really good job, and just to quickly, like, you, uh, you know, are you allowed to talk about the guys who coached you from the street, like guys like Josh Brown and stuff like that? Or my like, uh, even this season, I called Turney Duff. Oh, Turney was on your uh, Our boy. podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, we love Turney. We love the Duff. Raved about him with Kelly. I love Turney, and he, I, I can text him or call him and be like hey what what does this mean because i um i don't know finance at all and i've never traded or bought stock in my life and um and so someone like turney who um was a consultant for us for many years it means a lot to be able to like ask him questions and of course our our bosses are our head writers and creators, Brian Koppelman and David Levine mm. are so great and informative and um, uh, like happy to share information, but I like to do research myself. And so Turney has been a great lifesaver, life preserver um, to contact when I'm like, what, what is, um, and he's such a nice 13 F or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just talking about those today. No, Turdy's Turdy's such a nice guy. I only met him the one time back in the nineties and it was in a place of ill repute and we were both faced. And even though he probably didn't remember me, he was still kind enough to come on our show. And, uh, you know, um, and so yeah, it was, yeah, it was a long night and a fun night, but yeah, he's a really <laughs> nice guy. And when he was working for a big fund and I was just a lonely, alone, a lowly, uh, you know, penny stock, uh, trader and he was very, very kind to me. So that, he was very approachable and that was when he was rolling. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, That's Tony. amazing. Yeah. He's, he's a great guy. You know, um, Daniel, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say like, I mean, at least for me. I think this is one of the best written shows. Um, I mean, maybe all time. I mean, there's abundance of quotables. How many writers, I mean, yeah, the quotables are insane. Like so many great quotes. How, how many writers are there? Um, Cause I know there's like a writer's room. I follow them on Twitter, which I love by the way, cause they give you some insights on uh, certain things. Um, but yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. So Brian Koppelman, David Levine, executive producers, writers, like the heads of our show, mm-hmm. um, incredible 
talented like fonts of knowledge and pop culture references and everything possible. Um, the writer's room, I don't know the like exact number, um, but like on a tiny tangential note, I will say like we had um, uh, our bosses, Brian and David are such great people in that like we had an assistant in the writer's room who this season is one of the writers for the episodes themselves, Emily Hornsby. And so like to see my bosses be the type of people that fosters future talent right. and like literally puts their money where their mouth is and gives this person a voice and a job from like rising from the writer's assistant level is so cool. Um, and like so honorable and, and I, I find rare um, in the business. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, I want to say like five to seven people in the writer's room. I'm, okay. I can't like, um, like look at IMDB right now. And I know they, um, when the pandemic first hit, they like went to zoom right away. And I, I, I really respect that. Like that everyone was available and they're spread out. Like then, um, Mez, Mezrich, Mezrich, who wrote big Bitcoin. The Bitcoin. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin billionaires in Boston and like mm -hmm. Stephanie Micus is based in LA and Adam Perlman was in LA and now in New York. And um, I know like the, the room assembles prior to shooting and then sort of disbands and then works remotely. And so, um, yeah, I just, they are like, I'm biased. I know, but they are incredibly talented. Um, so, so good. And, and it's, it's so cool to be a part of something that you're proud of and I don't think that always happens in any any occupation and so I can look back and say or you know live in the present and say like how fucking awesome to be a part of this with the best um, yeah. talent in front of and behind the camera uh, yeah yeah no I mean I I mean I agree I mean the the I just I love how it's like they have old school references they have, but it's oh. modern, but it's modern at the same time. You get some of old school New York, then you get modern day New York. It, it's just, it's just a perfect blend in my yeah. mind of both. Right. Just fresh. It's, like, mm -hmm. I fully have to Google things when I first get the script and think like, oh, what, what is this reference? What is this um, athlete? Who is this, mm -hmm. um, you know, author or whatnot? And then I think that like really enhances the experience of watching it. When, when you know a reference and think, oh, I'm on the inside of this, or if you have to look it up and find, oh, there are so many more layers to what was just spoken, and, and like, what a joy to get to see all the, the depth to it, that in a toss-away um, retort or like a funny comeback or whatnot. Right, right. It's like, I, I <laughs> this is funny, I used to, <laughs> what we were talking about when you first joined off, off the podcast, right? I, uh, I was watching Billions with, I can't watch it with, with, uh, with women. Like when I'm with women, they, they're like, because uh, I, I can't miss any like little dialogue <laughs> for, for that point. <laughs> like you're saying, like, <laughs> like jam-packed with like references and yeah. like nonstop dialogue. It feels like theater in that way, or it feels Shakespearean where yeah. you can't miss a single word and all of it's been perfectly crafted as a part of this larger puzzle that you won't realize is the puzzle until after the fact. And it happens yeah. in the episode and then like with the season and it builds on itself. It, it really is a remarkable feat of our creators, Brian and David and the writer's room that they're weaving this intricate, intricate web um, that's self-referential and like taps into modern times but also because we shoot before it airs like it feels like it predicts the future in crazy ways and so well and, it, and uh, it's also a lot of it is so realistic like i remember the one episode sorry to interject the the, the guy that they they were trying to raise money with and they really didn't want to you know fraudy and, um, yeah. you know, and they didn't want, you know, to have to call him, but he had no connections with the money. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, and I've been in that situation so many times where you've had to go to a guy that you really don't want to have to go to, to <laughs> yeah. raise the money to try and close a deal because you just can't close it. And, 
you know, it's just like, so parts of that were like, Oh my God, this actually feels like stuff I've gone through, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, I, uh, I like, I'm one of those weirdos that can't stand the sound of chewing. And so for him to be eating all that seafood and like oh, yeah. chewing so viscerally. And like slurping. Really, yes. It's just so many noises I do oh. not like. Um, but it's so perfect for that character. And so for you to oh, say yeah. that like reflects your real life. Um, yeah, well, makes me well, feel like immense pity for your, your past with those people. Oh, no. It was, I mean, like we had a guy called Bloated Gary and, and he was kind of the same way. Right? <laughs> Bloated and, and you know, and and nobody even really knew his last name. He'd call over the on the overhead, and people would just go, "It's bloated, Gary on line three, right?" Um, <laughs> and or just say it's bloated. And so, but he was like that too. If you ate a, ate a meal with him, there'd be food flying all over the place. You oh, know, man. so it's 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 really realistic. I'm like, oh my god, how did they got that? They nailed that one. You know. Yeah. Like when I waited tables and bartended, we would get to know the regulars, and you'd be like, uh, "Here's that person again." Um, I think we called one person. This is horrible. I'm sorry if he's listening to this. Like, um, like bird something. Basically, he like put a bunch of condiments on his dish, and then would like kind of re like mash it all up so it just looked like a pool of vomit, and then he could eat it. <laughs> Any of you, uh... And it's just not oh. a pleasant experience to like walk by that and think how is your meal sir and it's just a puddle of orange oh. and brown and you can't <laughs> tell if the chef cooked it well or not because it is uh as not um distinguishable in its current state so wow. um yeah <laughs> for you to be trading with interesting characters and for them to have nicknames that that feels like a spot-on thing oh yeah, oh, yeah. he's, he's got nicknames nicknames for everybody right jay yeah every yeah it's everybody had a nickname you know it was just that's <laughs> yeah. the way it was back in the day you know <laughs> well yeah i mean in uh, uh daniel you guys um you know not only is the writing exceptional it's it, it's complemented very well with great acting I mean the whole. I mean the whole cast really, um, inc incredible. Um, did you? I want to ask you this. One of one of your scenes. Um, how did you enjoy the uh, the elevator? Uh, that little elevator <laughs> dancing scene where Wendy <laughs> told you to do a bold action. <laughs> how, how was that? I feel like I feel like. Well, a I don't have a a dad in real life, and so I've always looked at Brian and David as these like surrogate fathers that the universe has gifted me. Mm -hmm. And um, and like I said, I I feel like I straddle the extrovert and the introvert spectrum, and so on set I I probably read more as an introvert because if you're next to someone like Dan Soder who's regaling you with the funniest story ever told, what need is there to speak? Um, and interrupt <laughs> like pure comedic gems coming out of his mouth. And um, when they wrote that episode, uh, Brian and David had pulled me aside uh, a couple episodes before and said, you have this thing coming, um, just be prepared for it. And then um, like the episode was approaching and, and they said, um, we're hiring you a choreographer to, um, to work on this episode. And, um, and the choreographer had worked on Beyonce's concerts and music videos. And, uh, and I thought, okay, this feels <laughs> like a, like a big deal. And, um, and then when you read the script and, and it's like, then Kim strips in an elevator, um, I thought, all right, this is, uh, this is what I get because I see, I think we were shooting that season and Kelly, a coin who plays dollar bill, um, had seen an Instagram of mine that was like a photo shoot where I was half naked in a lake as part of a calendar that was about um, giving Asian American men uh, sexuality because we are often um, neutered in media representation mm -hmm. and just in general mm -hmm. um, in societal perspectives. Of. And so, um, so he, I think we were shooting a scene in the conference room and he like pats his phone around saying, this is Daniel half naked. Oh my gosh. And, and I've never confirmed this, but I feel like Brian or David must have gotten wind of this half naked picture of mine and thought, great, we will make him half naked on billions. And it is, it is um, the true definition of hubris and uh, Greek mythology coming to bite me in my ass that I had to take my shirt off 
on the show in the midst of like a winter body and in front of <laughs> and David Costable who plays Wags, like my favorite people and then complete strangers. And, um, and the whole episode being about this character overcoming his own um, shyness and reticence, um, it felt like a, like a life lesson Brian and David were bestowing upon me and my own sort of life path and journey mm. and voice. Mm. And um, whether or not they intended that, I, I do find that um, I will die at the age of many decades from now, hopefully, and, and this elevator scene will haunt me to my death. It <laughs> will also be a mark of this is what you did and this is what that journey was and um, how great to have that sort of um, immortalized in, yeah. in this um, scene. And I'll just, I'll never forget like Damien's reaction or David um, <laughs> like playing around and be like, you can touch me and do whatever you want. And <laughs> playing with his mustache or like messing with a complete stranger's hair. Um, I really have to like learn all those actors who were um, in that elevator's name to just thank them um, for, you know, we, we, we do a lot of coverage on the show and essentially we shot that elevator scene from every wall so the door the and then the other three walls of the elevator would be taken away to put the cameras there so it was a long time um after lunch of course so i had eaten something and just um <laughs> me taking my clothes off over and over and over again for this group of people <laughs> yeah Oh man. And I'll, I'll never forget it. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Great, great perspective though. Um, I, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's great. That's, that's deep in, in a sense as well. Um, so Daniel, so, I mean, your character, he, he's had a good maturation, um, over the seasons. Um, yeah. well, what do you, what do you think about it? Where maybe could we expect, obviously without spoiling anything? Um, I'm sure you can't even do that anyway. <laughs> Um, I like that elevator scene has always been a pivotal moment for mm -hmm. me in my personal life, but also for the character to see someone who came in hot and strong and cocky based on education and a feeling of self-worth and then um, being cut down a peg or two to have to earn um, your place in a uh, business, in a new environment, in a, in a society where um it where there's fierce competition and a cutthroat atmosphere and um and i've watched this guy grow over the years from um sort of being taken down and uh humbled in many respects to finding his voice again mm -hmm. and um you know i the finance world or just many occupations have a toxic masculinity or a uh, an intensity and a aggression that may not always um, be easy to work in, to fit into, or to participate in. And so I, I think Ben Kim is someone who has slowly but surely learned the ropes there and is growing in that environment and finding his own voice. and to be someone else's um, new hire to now having someone under him feels like uh, like an evolution that our creators have been so great to, to evolve over the seasons. And um, I'm excited to see him continue to grow and find his voice, his confidence, and, um, and like whatever success can be measured as um, to, to find and implement success in his career. Um, in this atmosphere that's that's very hard to thrive in and yet I think he's slowly thriving there uh, right right I never I never thought of it from the environment perspective um, yeah that's, that's that's real interesting um, I believe uh, Daniel there's two more episodes left correct until I think um, one more actually. Oh, this one next more. Sunday will be the will be our sort of mid-season finale because of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, we had started shooting episode eight, um, and we had to stop in the middle of it 
because of quarantine and uh, all the precautions that um, our production team and our producers were great about doing a sort of ahead of the curve to protect us and everyone yeah. um, uh, on staff. So, uh, any uh, any talks about when um, potential to uh, start shooting again? I saw an article that California has allowed for production to resume June 12th, but mm -hmm. um, New York hasn't announced the date yet. And I, um, I'm trying not to be a nagging mm -hmm. person in this and, and pester our producers about when we can return. And so I, I don't know, but I know that they really do care about our safety and our well-being. And so, um, Right. So when the time is right or when when it can be done with respect to safety and um, care to all people on the crew and then the cast, um, you know, I hope it is soon, but I, I appreciate and acknowledge that it might take a bit um, before we can get back and I'll, I'll miss, I miss everyone. Yeah. You know. I'm yeah. sure everyone does in their own individual jobs and lives. Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing, too. Like, your guys, um, the the vibe that you guys give off, um, just maybe just on Twitter or just how you guys interact with each other, it seems like you guys all get along very I well. I was just going to say totally. that. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's yeah. the truth, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like – I'm surprised at how rare it is, but I treasure that this is the reality I live in. And we – I'm on a group chat with these guys on team X and we, we text every day or, you know, we were obsessed with Marco Polo, that app when it first came out and just <laughs> sent each other stupid videos all the time. And, um, you know, I, I texted Kelly right before this, like, Hey, I'm interviewing with these guys that, uh, you did a podcast too. And I never knew you worked at a steel mill and, you know, um, <laughs> It's so, it sounds so cliche, but there's a whole family that's been built out of this. And I credit that to um, the people that have been invited or uh, been a part of this show. And it, it starts from the top down and the environment that's been fostered from our leads and from our bosses uh, has fostered and gendered an environment where, you know, it's easier to work if you like who you are getting to work with. And <laughs> there are no divas, there are no um extreme personalities it it feels like a team sport and i'm not a sports person but like when that when it works like a um a family it um it's special i love mm -hmm. this group of people so much um, mm -hmm. and uh, and like as new yorkers in this crazy unprecedented time it it makes you feel less alone and like um taken care of in a in the socially distant way mm -hmm. like we even love spiros stephen kunkin who's like <laughs> a crazy character on the show but is like a wonderful human oh. and the reason why i bought like a mask before masks were um, but, needed or required for our time you know? and he he nails that part too because i've had compliance officers who are very similar not with the <laughs> not with that crazy coffee machine that but Cortado. you know, yeah yeah, that's but, Steven's like real life passion that our creators <laughs> Brian and David have put into the show. But then it oh, really? also means he has this like incredible espresso machine in his fake office this. and <laughs> and makes cappuccinos and lattes for us while we're shooting. Um, <laughs> that's great. Which is that's just, cool. You know, a, another perk of the job. That's great. You know, I I I loved. Um, you know, I, it was last episode. I love the line you said, uh, if I can remember it, it was in regards to Spiros because you guys were worried about him failing that test. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> test. yeah and you said, and you say, oh, yeah, you say, someone was like, oh, well, maybe we're over, over underestimating it. You're like, no, I've been testing them all day. We're properly estimating it. Yeah. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> that was such a fun day to shoot um, yeah. and a fun storyline for the office to have. Um, I've never taken the Mensa test, but like our props people wrote those cards out very similar to actual Mensa questions and it had all the answers on them and it was fun to like um, play around and see what was on those cards and, uh, and uh, to imagine Mafi being a real 
like um, easy Mensa star and and Spiro's like wishing he were with that like fake giant pin and all. Um, (laughs) So great. Yeah, that was, that was. um, So something, Daniel, I've always um, wondered, and I'm sure it differs from individual to individual. Uh, Mm -hmm. But how do you practice your craft? How do you improve as an actor? I... I moved to New York because I loved theater and I wanted to work in the medium of theater mm-hmm. and um, to pay your bills and uh, a sort of progression in life that I could never have predicted um, led me to work in film and TV more. But I do think um, actors cannot hide and cannot um, sort of bullshit their way on stage, mm-hmm. that there is no place to um, to have a bad attitude, to not have the work ethic, to not um, deliver in discipline, in, um, or in rigor, and in, in sort of sustaining storytelling energy. And, um, and so I, I, I feel like you cut your teeth on stage and, and that is a place that I've always returned to. And I, I really mourn the loss of in this time that we cannot gather safely at this time in an audience or on stage mm-hmm. in a theater, because I think that's where magic happens. And, um, and the craft of is unparalleled. And um, our casting director, Alison Estrin on Billions always um, says jokingly, but with complete seriousness that we have the best cast of New York stage and film on Billion. And, and oh, we wow. really do. And if you look at anyone's um, resume, you can, you can point, that, point to their theater resume too. And, and I think there's an incredible um, ensemble that has been nominated for Tonys or um, mm-hmm. has, have done these incredible shows on stage in addition to their incredible film and TV resumes. And so um, I personally find inspiration and growth um, on stage. And and I sort of, um, I never stop devouring that. So even in quarantine, I've been watching a ton of TV and film and theater productions that have been filmed um, just because you can always learn from watching. From right, um, right. um, I sort of stay satiated um, in this time by by being inspired and learning from others in what they're doing at their best. Right, that makes Whatever sense. Whatever the medium may be, yeah. Right, right, that makes sense. Yeah, because, you know, I asked, I'm, I'm pretty sure I asked Kelly this. Um, I asked him what was, you know, maybe the pros and cons or what which was harder, theater or, you know, doing TV. And I imagine, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't act, but I would imagine theater is because... Uh, maybe the element of being in front of the audience. I mean, he told me things were different and maybe one not harder than the other. Well, what are your thoughts? I, I try not to put things on a hierarchy of difficulty and, and respect <laughs> that, that each medium is right. incredibly mm-hmm. difficult in its own way. I think, I think there are mediocre or terrible actors in the world who get great editing, great lighting, you know, perfect makeup or costumes or hair mm-hmm. um, that make them look better. Whereas on stage, no matter how good your costume looks, how flawless your makeup or perfectly styled your hair, you can't hide uh, behind anything when it's just you on stage or you and your scene partner or partners. And so um, I, think, I think there's a, a no bullshit kind of barometer on, mm-hmm. on stage. That, uh, that you really see someone's um, true self or whole essence um, poured into this work. And, and uh, you can't, yeah, you can't bullshit around it. <laughs> and, and so that, that sort of uh, shows your um, merit or, you know, ability in that moment at least. And right. to do something like theater six, seven, eight times a week. Um, It's like, you know, other people in their office jobs don't just go to bat one day a week, right? You have to deliver every day. Mm -hmm. And and 
in theater, you, you are delivering all those times um, over and over again. And, and that, that shows something or a lack thereof, um, mm -hmm. whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. hmm. Good. Yeah. Well, th well, thanks for putting me in the check because you're absolutely right. Like, like putting things in the hierarchies, uh, definitely not the, uh, I don't think that's just a good way to do anything mindset wise. Um, mm -hmm. l l let me, let me ask you this though, Daniel is, um, is someone who uh, struggles in the theater, can they, they can, they, you're saying they can make a good, they can TV and lighting can make up for it, but someone who's good in theater, is it always, are they always successful in TV or, because I would think, I would I, think so, right? I mean, I would want that to be true, but I think there are different mediums in which different um, aspects of yourself have to be Excel. employed. To, okay. to, yeah, to tell the story. And so, um, like the, the like easiest thing to think of is saying you are too big for camera. And, and I don't know if that is really an honest critique to give to anybody, but, um, there are, there are subtleties and privileges with a camera being right in front of your face and what you can employ to tell story versus, um, you know, a 2000 feet theater and how you are using your whole body to tell a story or your whole voice. And so um, I guess it's like different muscles to use um, if you were on a Zoom call versus if you were giving a presentation in front of a hundred people in an auditorium mm -hmm. or whatever your job may be, you're using different um, aspects, assets, parts of yourself to tell that story. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about. So, um, Daniel, I want to um, I want to ask you about according to my mother project. Sure, yes, yeah. yes, the inspiration behind that. Very, very interesting. <laughs> um, it started out as a series of Facebook posts when Facebook was the cool platform to be on, <laughs> where I would just um, uh, transcribe conversations I had with my mom who lives in Orange County, California, and I'm here in New York. And so uh, the way we relate to each other and stay connected is usually by the phone, um, but often text and email. Um, and she's incredibly conservative, Christian, um, deeply, deeply religious, and like a crazy conspiracy theory believer, and an immigrant from Korea, and a single mother, and I'm an only child, and um, I am very liberally slanted and, uh, and gay and queer and um, in opposition to her set of beliefs. And so um, while it may seem easier to not have a relationship in many ways, we choose to engage in one. And, um, and it results in her being very uh, homophobic or very conservative or very um, what I would call crazy and um, she may not agree as such about her perspectives and uh, and so writing these snippets of conversations down led to creating a short film pilot presentation about her and now um, developing a TV show about the relationship between an only child and single parent um, immigrant mother uh, conservative liberal Christian agnostic or straight and gay um, dynamic and what it would be like to imagine um, instead of the kid having to go back home to live with their parents, if the parent had to move in with their child um, and not only that, but starting over in New York City and um, being in your golden years and trying to figure out how to start anew. Um, is the premise of a TV show that hopefully someone will make on a cable platform or streaming venue near you. Mm. Um, so awesome. my I mean, mom I was... hates it, but, uh, Oh, your mom <laughs> hates it. Oh, come on. Mom. Uh, oh. She's also like oddly supportive in her own way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, man, that, that's great though, man. Like, like I, um, like you said, it would be the easier thing to be like, I don't even want to have a relationship um right so i you right. know i really commend you for that because that is the hard thing to do and you know not not having uh parental support and acceptance i mean it's tough it would be tough for any any human 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, this is where most of our issues come from, right? Our parents. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, Daniel, I, I imagine, I imagine the writing served as like, sort of like therapy for this. Totally. Right. I yeah. mean, any, what other mechanisms um, do you use or have you used to help like cope and accept with this situation? I've already mentioned therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, the writing has been a huge sort of, um, outlet for me to try to find com comedy and empathy where otherwise it would be um, a source of trauma or pain and i also find um, creating community and in places of um, where you can find incredible empathy so the asian asian american community the um, arts community the gay and queer community have been sources for me to find um, strength and to not feel so alone you know that that no one is really alone in their struggle and there are other people who understand or will try to understand what you're going through and that um, that can be a, a huge source of refuge and strength um, so that you aren't having to feel like you're the only one going through something mm-hmm. um, community yeah beautiful yeah beautiful yeah I, I um I forget where I heard it. I heard it a couple of weeks ago, but I really like the quote. I forget who said it, but it said, uh, love is the highest level of understanding. And mm. I, I really, that, that really, yeah, that really hit me deep. And um, it's something I keep trying to remind myself of going forward. And so Daniel, I really, I really appreciate your perspective um, and what you're doing. Um, one last question. I'll let you get going. <laughs> what, um, what are you currently reading? Any good book recommendations for me? Oh man, I love reading. And so um, I just today actually just finished um, this book by Muriel Barbary called The Elegance of the Hedgehog that my friend Mark sent me. Hmm. Um, and so I, I actually like canceled all my plans today to read that, which I know is super nerdy, but it brought me joy. Um, I just read um, a book called Pachinko by um, Min Jin Lee. Um, that's one of my favorite like e- epics that I've read in a while. It's like hundreds and hundreds of pages and they just flew by and they were um, really moving. And to like read something set in Korea um, that, uh, and Japan that I didn't know about meant a lot. Um, I, uh, in times of quarantine and the pandemic, I read Severance by Ling Ma. And um, that also deals with the pandemic. And so it was, um, it was sort of crazy and um, uh, scary, but also like titillating to see what an, uh, a fictional version of a pandemic would be and to see where the parallels were to our real life. Um, because it's also said in New York versus like what, what wasn't the same or the differences from our present day. Um, yeah. A friend of mine, R.R. Thomas, wrote a book called Here For It, and it's like a collection of essays, autobiographical, and he's so funny. He, um, he has this like long-standing article or um, uh, daily article on L.com where he just regurgitates the news, but in like the funniest way, and so to hear him talking about his childhood and his upbringing in this book called Here For It um, uh, was it was nice to laugh and find comedy um, in in what is a, a rather dark timeline, I think, for the world right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I absolutely agree. Yeah, no, I mean, comedy is essential. I mean, at least for me, it's essential. Yeah. Laughing's essential. Totally. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, so with that, that's going to conclude today's episodes of Confession of a Market Maker. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it for us. If you want to join a pleasant and sharp group of traders, I'm in the Equities ETC room at equitiesetc.com. JJ is using market profile and trading futures at microefutures.com. Daniel, let the people know where they can find you and anything else you'd like the listeners to know. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Daniel K. Isaac, I-S-A-A-C, for both platforms and um please stay safe and well and um black lives matter now more than ever
thank you for supporting that. Yes, yes, JJ. Thank you very much for being on the show, Daniel. I really, really appreciated it and learned a lot from you. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to get to have a conversation um, outside of the day-to-day in this crazy time. So thanks <laughs> for having me on. And, and it's nice to uh, pretend to interact or, you know, actually interact outside of one's own world right now. Yes, yes, Daniel. Um, appreciate you joining us. I appreciate your perspective uh, on a lot of things. Um, commend you. Um, and thank you for putting out a you know great show all of you guys great mm-hmm. acting great writing we really enjoy it um it represents uh the trading community well i would say jj would say so from especially the wall street side of things um so yeah it's an honor you joined us thanks, and, guys. Yep. thanks for watching one more episode so far and then we'll get back to it as soon as we can so <laughs> we'll be waiting absolutely all right and so for daniel k isaac i'm harold he's kumar Make sure you guys are using stops, though. (laughs) Have a good night, folks.